Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are covering in this audio Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. We're, begin, we're beginning our study of chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, the faith chapter. The chapter is divided, or can be divided, into four parts. First seven verses is the faith of the antediluvians, like Noah and Abel. And then we go to verses 8 through 22, and we read about the faith of the patriarchs. And then we read verses 23 through 31. We look at the faith of Moses. And then 32 through 40, the end of the chapter, we see the faith of the judges. So we're going to take up the faith of the antediluvians here in the first seven verses of chapter 11. Our context is this. In chapter 10, verses 26 through 39, our last audio, at the end of chapter 10, we looked at the problem of apostasy, that complicated chapter of the Hebrew Christians leaving the faith for Judaism, which some people use to claim that people can lose their salvation, which we have denied in the last audio. So now we start with Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Very famous verse we quoted all the time. And the now, it's not talking a temporal now. It means uh, having said what I just said before, now this is what I say now. That's what the now means. The exhortations that are about to be given are, get, are given based on the preceding exposition of Old Testament passages. We'll see the scriptures that are that were just talked about in the last part of chapter 10, Hebrews 10:23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Hebrews 10:35 through 36. So don't throw away your confidence. Hebrews 10:38 and 39. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and obtain life. Now, having said that we need to have faith and we shouldn't throw away our confidence and we must hold on to our confession, now having said that, this is what faith is. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, Hebrews 11.1. 1. The Greek word for faith there is pistis. It means trust or confidence. It's a very easy word, easy to define. Trust, confidence, or faith, those are exact synonyms. It means believing something one cannot see. For example, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, but as it is written, what I did not see and ear did not hear, and what never entered the human mind, God prepared for this for those who love him. All the good things that we are going to see in Christ, we don't see them. We just see trees and asphalt and cars and cities and things like that. But by faith, we know that there's another reality beyond all that. And that's what we hope for, the reality of what is hoped for. Now, the Hebrew Christians needed faith. They were being persecuted terribly. And so the writer encourages them with great stories of faith in the history of the Jews. These Remember, these are Hebrew Christians being exhorted. So examples of faith in the history of Israel would be most apropos for these Christians, these Hebrew Christians. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for or the substance some translations have. The NIV has being sure. Faith is being sure of what is hoped for. We know it. We know it's true even though we can't see it. The Greek word is hypostasis for reality. Faith is reality. Now, as a translation issue here, the NIV, instead of translating the word hypostasis as reality, faith is reality of what is hoped for, the NIV translates it as confidence that we hope for. The Holman Christian Study Bible says the reality of what is hoped for the NIV says the confidence of what it, we hope for. Well, let me give you a quote from F.F. F. Bruce discussing the translation of that Greek word, hypostasis. It's a, it's a difficult question. 
BAGD, that's Bauer, Art, Grit, Gendrick, and Danka, the famous Greek lexicon. BAGD's lexicon states that the sense of confidence assurance must be eliminated since examples of it so used cannot be found. Instead, they suggest that it means realization or reality. Thus, in faith, things hoped for become realized, or things hoped for become reality. This is also how it was translated by Tyndall and Luther. The Geneva Bible renders this, Faith is what which causes those things to appear indeed which are hoped for. Those things to appear indeed or to appear in reality. So, how do we summarize that? Well, the word can either be translated confidence or reality. Bruce seems to think it should be reality. And if it's reality, then it means faith is the things that are hoped for become reality. I don't think it makes that much difference because you could say, I have confidence in what I hope for, or I know that what I hope for will become real, will be a reality. What's the difference? Faith is a wonderful thing to have, folks. It's nothing because the opposite of faith is fear, and Jesus does not mean for us to live in fear. Not even when things go bad, and believe me, in this world, things go bad all the time. Now, faith is the reality of things that are hoped for. The Hebrews were hoping for the forgiveness of their sins. That's what they were hoping for. And hope is not a mere wish, as sometimes we say in English, but it is a confident expectation of the future. Now, hope is a subset of faith. Faith is the belief of things past, present, or future, which you can't see. But hope is things that are future, which you can't see. Romans 8, 24 and 25 says this about hope. Now, in this hope we were saved, yet hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. So we know we're going to get it, but we got to wait for it, and we got to wait for it with endurance or patience. we got to put up with a lot of stuff before we get it, but we will get it. Faith in verse 1 is said to be the proof of what is not seen. Proof means it, something sh- is shown to us that we, to prove that we know it's true, even though we don't see it. The reality of things hoped for and not seen. Eyesight gives us proof of things in the physical order. Faith gives us, gives us proof of what is in the unseen order. Let's look at how Thomas dealt with seeing and not seeing, and how Jesus distinguished seeing and believing. John 20, verses 24 through 29, But one of the twelve, Thomas, called twin, was not with them when Jesus came, also known as Doubting Thomas. So the other disciples kept telling him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. After eight days, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them. He said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Those who believe without seeing are blessed. Now, there's something interesting about this verse. Of course, it's better to believe if you don't see. But Jesus, nevertheless, took somebody who was having trouble with his face, and he showed him something, showed him proof. And I know for a fact that when I was having a lot of trouble believing, about to lose my, sal- lose my faith, not lose my salvation, but lose my faith, lose my confidence that Jesus was real, intellectual doubt, you know, the whole typical thing, Jesus showed me something because I asked for it. I said, please show me that you're real. So Jesus will show you. Thomas wanted proof, and Jesus showed him. Now, that was a concession. He said, Thomas, you would have been better if you didn't have to have me show you stuff. You'd just believe without seeing. But he still showed Thomas. So we need to remember that. Our faith is not blind faith. Our faith is based on evidence which point to things that we can't see. But it's not blind faith. 
I mean, after all, I believe in Jesus, but I had the Bible. You know, I read the Bible. That you know, I watched people's lives change. I watched Jesus do miracles in my life. So I do have some sight, but I don't have sight of the ultimate thing I'm believing in. I've got some proof. I've got things that are signposts that lead me to faith. Some things that indicate that Jesus and his kingdom are true, but I haven't seen it yet, but I know it's true. But just because I haven't seen it yet, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't give us hints along the way. I mean, look at the stars. If that's not something that would lead you to faith. So it's not totally, blind faith is not what we're talking about here. It just means you believe and you don't see. You can't expect to see things all the time in the Lord. A lot of times you have to do something even though you can't see the end of it, but you know that he's told you to do it. Hebrews verse 2, chapter 11. For our ancestors won God's approval by it. By what? By faith. Now, who were the ancestors? Those were the old covenant believers. Our ancestors. Remember, the author is Jewish, a Jewish Christian, and the readers are Jewish Christians. So he says our, our ancestors. Now, in this chapter, that we're going to go through all the ancestors. We're going to take four audios to do it. But in this chapter, there's not one mention of Adam and Eve as Adam Clark points out. Now, there's some possible reasons why that is. Clark speculates, one, Adam's rebellion against his maker was too great and too glaring to permit his name to be ever after mentioned with honor or respect. Well, you know, have you ever thought about, I'd like to see Adam in heaven and say, why did you do it, Adam? Look at all the trouble you caused me. I'm sure we'll forget it by then. We'll have forgiven everybody. We'll even forgive Adam. But it could be that's why the author didn't mention Adam, because uh, Adam is noted for his sin that, originated sin and, to, and, and passed sin on down to mankind and wrecked the human race, so he's not exactly a good person to mention. But there's another possible reason why the author didn't mention Adam and Eve, because they didn't need faith. They walked with God directly. They saw him, and faith is something you can't see. So either way, Adam and Eve aren't in there. Now, our ancestors won God's approval by it. You want to make God happy, you got to believe in him. The more you show faith in God, the more you believe in him, the happier he is. He likes it. You win God's approval. He approves of you when you believe in him. Verse 3, chapter 11. By faith we understand that the universe was created by God's command, so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. We didn't see the universe created, so we just assumed that all the stuff we see had to be created by somebody, and it was God. Here's the author's argument. Since you Hebrews already believe that God created the universe... Take it a step further and believe that God will deliver you from your sufferings. That's Steve Atkinson's idea. I think it's pretty good. The author is arguing from the given, from the certain, to what is not certain in the Hebrews' minds. They know that God created the universe. They believe it by faith. So by golly, they can believe by faith that God's going to deliver them from this horrible persecution from their unbelieving Jewish brethren. Now, here's some Old Testament verses that show that the universe was created ex nihilo by God. Psalm 33, verse 6. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. That's why I love I've done this several times trying to witness to people, and they start giving me a hard time. I say, okay, look at the stars. You look at the stars at night. Where did they come from? I remember one particular grad assistant I had, Chinese, Chinese girl, I'll call her MJN, and she was pretty hard-headed. Didn't believe, didn't want to believe in Jesus, and I finally, after trying several angles, I, it was night, and I looked up and I pointed up at the stars, and I said, "Okay, MGN, where did those stars come from?" And she says, "I don't know." I said, "Well, aren't you curious?" She says, "Well, I don't know, but I'm not worried. Our scientists will tell us." Total faith in science. Yeah, well, the science hadn't explained it yet. The scientists don't know where it got, where the universe came from, and I tell you where it came from because I believe by faith. 
the heavens were made by the word of the Lord. Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. There's a nice verse for creation, ex nihilo. He spoke and it came into existence. Job 38, 4, where were you when I established the earth? God's talking to Job, giving Job a little hard time. Tell me if you have understanding. Where were you when I established the earth? I made it. Now, here's a little interesting theological issue here. By faith, we understand that the universe is created by God's command. The word command is rhema. Now, rhema is usually translated as word, like logos is translated word, and there's a whole theology built up of the difference between logos and rhema. Jameson Fawcett Brown says the distinction is this. Rhema is the spoken word of God. Logos is the personal word of God. I guess it means Jesus. Jesus is the logos. And rhema is when God speaks to you. If you look on the Internet, you can see a bunch of articles that say rhema is spoken personally to to the person. Logos is, is the general word spoken generally as general truth. Here's a quotation from differencebetween.com. Rhema, the rhema word is the word for your current situation telling you what to do. Where God speaks to you directly. Sounds sort of like mysticism. Well, I heard this all my life when I was in the charismatic movement, which was heavily infiltrated by Copenhagenites. In fact, Kenneth Hagin's Bible school in Tulsa is called Rhema Bible Institute or something to that effect. And they were constantly saying, you got to have the rhema word. Well, I'm not saying that he's wrong about that, because I do believe that God needs to, to speak to you directly sometimes to tell you whether you should do this or should do that. I believe the peace of Christ should guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. And You know, there are some Reformed people out there that are, I call them deists because they say you have to use the word. I say, well, where in the Bible does it tell me what job I'm supposed to take or who I'm supposed to marry? Where does it say that? Or... What part of the scripture should I study next or something? There's nothing in the Bible that will tell you that. you got to have God talking to you. So I believe, I, I like the distinction. I believe that it's true, that there's general truths and then truth spoken to you generally. I mean, God might tell somebody to stay single. Well, he didn't tell me that, so that's a rhema word to the person who stays single. Okay, I, I, I believe I believe in the concept, but I'm not sure this word rhema makes the distinction. I looked it up in, the, in Thayer's lexicon. Briefly, and it, nothing in the de- definition. It said it was a spoken word, but it didn't say anything about it being a personal word to you as opposed to the general word. But let's just assume for the sake of argument that rhema is the word that God speaks to us personally to tell us what we need to do in our current situations. Well, then why, who did God speak to when he created the universe by God's rhema? I mean, it's the spoken word because God spoke it, but who did he speak it to? It wasn't a personal direct word of God to anybody. It was the creation of the universe which is pretty objective, not subjective. So I'm going to let that one go. The end of the verse says, so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. There's your creation, ex nihilo, because things are not visible. You can't see it. So boom, there's a universe. Hebrews 11:4. And by the way, if you think that those verses like that teach something like theistic evolution, I got some ocean foot property in Arizona, I can tell you. What has been seen is made from things that are not visible. The earth had to get here somehow, and that's, and that's one of the weak spots of evolution, is the evolutionists can't figure out where everything came from. Well, it's a big bang. Oh, where'd the big bang come from? I remember reading some famous evolution evolutionists were speculating on life somehow migrating to the planet through extraterrestrial space travel and all this nonsense. No, it came because God spoke it into existence. Boom, and there it was. Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel, now we're talking about the antediluvians here. By faith, 
Abel, antediluvians, when I say that, I mean people of Noah and, and earlier. Abel, of course, the second generation after Adam and Eve. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. Let's read the story in Genesis 4, 2 through 5. Then she, that's Eve, also gave birth to his brother Abel, Cain's brother Abel. Now, Abel became a shepherd of flocks. But Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Now, Abel's sacrifice was better. Abel offered meat. Cain offered grain. Why was Abel's sacrifice better? Well, here's some options. And this is the typical answer here, one that I don't believe, not anymore, I used to believe it, the idea that Abel's offering was better because it was a blood offering and Cain's was not a blood offering. Well, the problem with that view is, why would God be upset with Cain for offering a grain offering? That was his job, that's what he did, he grew grain, he didn't have any meat to offer. He grew crops for a living, and it was logical for him to offer grain and logical for Abel to offer animals. He was a herdsman, he had animals to offer. So I don't think that's what it is. The other option as to why Abel's sacrifice is better has to do with his faith, his sincere, heartfelt faith. Cain probably offered his grain offering as a mere matter of formality. The NIV Study Bible agrees with that view, and so does Steve Ackerson, and I do too. Even though that's not the majority view, I would not think. I think most people say it's because it's a blood offering, but I think that view is wrong, in my humble opinion. Now, God approved Abel's gifts, even though Abel is dead. The implication is, even though you Hebrews might die, if you still have faith, it won't matter. Will people still remember our faith after we're gone? Will we still remember Abel's faith? We're talking about it right now. Thousands of years later after Abel offered his sacrifice. And that's an interesting thought. Will God remember us? Will people remember us after we're dead and gone? Will they remember that we love the Lord? Abel is said in verse 4, Hebrews 11, to still speak through his faith. Still speak. How does Abel still speak? Well, here's one option through the record of his life in the scriptures. And we're reading about Abel right now. I just read you about what he did. He is still speaking that we should live lives of faith even as Abel did because he loved God and gave God a sacrifice. His faith is remarkable in light of his surroundings, as Steve Ackerson says. His parents, Adam and Eve, were the world's first sinners. His brother, Cain, was a man of no faith and a murderer. Well, okay, Abel speaks because of his righteousness in the midst of the, his evil environment. That's how he could still be speaking to us in faith, or through faith. He still speaks through his faith, as verse 4 says. Another option is he speaks forth through his faith because his shed blood still cries out for vindication. Genesis 4.10 says this, Then he said, God said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God speaking, speaking to Cain. Hebrews 12.22-24 through 24. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels and festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Well, why does the sprinkled blood used in the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament rituals, why do they speak better things than the blood of Abel? Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. Jesus' blood provides forgiveness. That's probably why. I've got a question here. Was Cain ever executed for his crime? I don't think so. I think he ran, if I remember correctly, to uh, cities. I don't think he ever got caught. 
So that would mean Abel's blood still crying out for vengeance from the ground, is it not? Except Jesus takes care of all that now. Abel's with God in heaven. doesn't matter anymore. I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to say that Abel is speaking because his blood is in the ground. How is that still speaking through his faith? No, I think it's rather the first option there. His record of his faith life, his life of belief in God in the midst of all of his bad circumstances, that's why he still speaks to us with an example of faith. We go to verse 5, Hebrews 11. By faith, Enoch was taken away, so he did not experience death. And he was not to be found because God took him away. For prior to his removal, he was approved, since he had pleased God. Let me read you the story of Enoch, Genesis 5, 18 through 24. Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after the birth of Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Jared's life lasted 962 years, then he died. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Well, I guess after 300 years, you can produce quite a brood. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. So Enoch lived a long life of loving God, and then he was rewarded with not having to die. He was just taken straight up into heaven as the author in Hebrew. If you read the the Old Testament in Genesis, it doesn't really say that Enoch was taken up to heaven. It says Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. Well, God could have taken him in death, and therefore he was not there anymore on the earth. And so it doesn't really say in Genesis that Enoch was taken up without dying, but the book of Hebrews does say that. Well, at least apparently says that he was not to be found because God took him away. That sounds like it, but it could be he was not to be found because he died because God took his life away. God took him away. We say that all the time. When somebody dies, we say God took him. So I don't know, except for one thing. Hebrews 11.5 says Enoch was taken away, so he did not experience death. Well, what does that mean? He didn't experience spiritual death or he did not experience physical death? It sounds like physical death to me. But I guess if you were a lawyer and wanted to try to prove otherwise, you could say, well, Enoch didn't really, wasn't really taken away without physically dying. But, of course, then you have the problem is, that's why is the author of the book of Hebrews even mentioning Enoch as an example? What's the big deal? He died, everybody dies. Well, you could say, well, yeah, what the author is pointing to is this pleasing God. His being approved by God for prior to his removal, he was approved since he had pleased God. So the point is not saying that Enoch was a special guy, a special hero of faith because he got transfigured, or not transfigured, but uh, trans transferred into heaven without dying. It's an interesting question. I don't know if anybody's ever questioned Enoch. I've always heard that Enoch went to heaven without dying, but just looking at it, it doesn't really precisely say that. It implies it, but doesn't really say it. Now, here's an interesting point that Steve Ackerson makes. Well, let me back up a minute. Since he pleased God, and again, I said he could have pleased God because he walked with God for so long, but other people say he pleased God by having faith in God to the extent that Enoch was taken up to God's presence without dying. That's why he pleased God. He pleased God, or that's the result of him having pleased God so much he didn't have to die. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Enoch pleased God by holding close to him for over 300 years. But anyway, God took him. Enoch never died, arguably. He never died. But Abel believed in God, too, and he did die. What can we make of that? Here's what Steve Ackerson says. One never knows the intermediate outcome of faith. We are called to walk by faith no matter what. 
Some people believe and they get killed. Some people believe and they're miraculously saved. I don't know why. Read history. You don't know how your life's going to turn out. That's not the point. The point is, is do you believe God whether you live or whether you die? Do you believe God? No matter what happens. Hebrews 11:6. Now without faith it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Now without faith it's impossible to please God. But it is possible to do, to do a lot of religious things without faith and not please God. For example, you can pray, you can praise God, you can study the Word, you can go to church, you can do good works. You can do all that, but you can do it without faith or without belief. You can do it by conforming to dead rituals, by monotonously, monotonously and robotically going through religious rituals. And you're not pleasing God because you don't have to have a sincere, heartfelt faith, a belief and confidence in God, an internal faith in God. You don't have it. You're just going through external rituals. So you want to please God, you got to have faith. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Now, notice that it's not just having faith. It's having faith in something. You must believe what? You must believe that he exists. You must have God as the object of your, of your faith. As the NIV Study Bible says, faith must always have an object. We should never say merely, well, I guess I'm saying this, not the NIV Study Bible. We should never say merely, I have faith. You hear that all the time, people of faith. People of faith in what? There's a lot of people that have faith in going to hell because they have faith in their money or their pride or some whacked out New Age religion. We should never say merely, I have faith. If, if you say something like that, you should immediately say, faith in what? And the author of the book of Hebrews says, faith you must believe that he exists. So blind faith is not proper. We don't have blind faith. We have faith in something, someone we can't see, but that's not blind faith. Blind faith is when you just believe, and you don't believe anything specific. Let me put it this way. Faith being the substance of things not seen, blind faith seems like a proper term. However, if blind faith has no object, it is not faith. It is rash, presumptuous, dangerous stupidity. Are you listening, Kenneth Copeland? Are you listening, Creflo Dollar and Benny Hinn? We must have faith that he exists, the author of Hebrews says in this verse. We must believe that he exists as he exists. How does he exist? In the Trinity. Here's how Adam Clark puts it. We need to, we need to believe in God like this, that he is a, quote, that he is, quote, a being infinite, eternal, unoriginated, and self-existent, the cause of all other being, on whom all being depends and by whose energy, bounty, and providence all other beings exist, live, and are supplied with the means of continuing existence and life. That's what we're supposed to believe. And that God rewards those who seek Him. Now, the NIV has earnestly seek Him. The KGV has diligently seek Him. The Homer Christian Study Bible, which I just read, just has seek Him. So, obviously, the Homer Christian Study Bible toned it down a little bit. J.F.B., Jameson Fawcett Brown, said the Greek word should be translated this way, strive as in an agony of contest, like you're in a wrestling contest. Seek him. Strive with him. Do everything that's possible to know who he is and find out who he is. Seek him. So that's one thing. God doesn't give out his rewards promiscuously. promiscuously. He rewards those who seek him. And that's why you see these Christians that are very, very diligent about prayer, praying and studying the Bible and such. They get rewarded like crazy. But if you're just a Sunday morning Christian, you just like to sit back on your futon and watch your color TV and play with your Apple tablet. And you're not really interested in the sick and dying people of the world. And you're kind of ignoring your wife and your kids. Folks, he ain't going to reward that too much. Because what did he say here? 
He rewards those who seek him. And you ain't seeking him. If you ain't seeking him, don't expect to get rewarded. Hebrews verse 7, and we'll shut this section down. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Who warned Noah? God did. He said, there's a big flood coming. Maybe you better build a boat. He was warned about what was not yet seen. That was the flood. He didn't see it. Remember, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is re- the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. The flood was not seen. Even though the flood was not coming, that which was not seen was a reality. He could feel the water splashing around his feet. He could feel the spray blowing on his face. He knew it was coming. So he built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world. He showed his faith by his actions. He did not just have an internal mental belief, but he says, okay, I believe the flood's coming. If you believe something, you're going to do something about it. Well, he did something external to his internal faith. He built an ark. And he built an ark in a dry, landlocked area and had everybody laughing at him. It was inconceivable there would be enough water there to float the vessel, but there was later on. So he believed even though he couldn't see the water. Now, what application of Noah's and Enoch's faith did the author expect the Hebrews to make? Let's look at some of his verses about faith in the previous chapter, chapter 10. Verse 23 of chapter 10, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10.35, so don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Remember, he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Your confidence has a great reward. 10.35. And, of course, the great reward is basically life in Christ in the Christian church as opposed to going back to Judaism. Hebrews 10.36, for you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. The promises. You need endurance. Hebrews 10.38 and 39, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those, we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and obtain life. So God rewards you if you have faith. You obtain life if you have faith. You're going to receive what was promised to you if you have faith. So Noah condemned the world by showing that the world was stupid and subject to judgment because they didn't have an ark to float away in, an ark to float away in when the rains came. And when the floods came from beneath the earth, they were condemned. They, They had it. But Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That language is New Testament language. Noah in the Old Testament got saved in the standard New Testament way by the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's read in Philippians 3.9. Paul says, Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. He's talking about himself being found in Christ. He doesn't have his own righteousness that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. He says, Paul says he's saved from the righteousness of God based on faith. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse says that Noah was saved by God by the righteousness that comes by faith. The language is almost exactly the same. So the Old Testament people were saved by faith just like we were. Of course, Noah was saved physically by faith, but also spiritually too. He was saved by faith. Just like Abraham was. He believed, Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 6, 9 says about Noah, These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. So he was a witness there as he was building that ark. Ladies and gentlemen, we're finished with Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, the faith of the antediluvians. In our next audio, we will take up verses 8 through 22 and talk about the faith of the patriarchs, mainly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.